course, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Grateful for the opportunity to gather and uh, to celebrate what the Lord's done for us on the cross and uh, mindful of his presence today. Looking forward to celebrating life change uh, through baptism today as well. We're continuing our series through the book of James this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn over to James or turn them on to James chapter 1 this morning. We're going to look at the next six verses uh, following verse 12. And the topic or the theme, the mark of maturity that James is going to discuss this morning is that of temptation. Temptation. How many of you have ever struggled with temptation before? All of us, right? There were only about four of you that raised your hand, but I know the rest are not admitting uh, their struggles today. One thing that I deal with each and every week is the temptation to go to Krispy Kreme Donuts. That's right, Krispy Kreme Donuts. Now, I, don't get me wrong, I, I like other type of donuts. Dunkin' Donuts has a good donut. There are other places around here, but it's really hard to beat a Krispy Kreme Donut when that hot now sign is on. You know what I mean? Uh, I know exactly what I mean, okay? <laughs> and I know you know. And uh, I feel like I've lost most of you already. So uh, if I see Earl sneak out in a few minutes, I know why, okay? We're going to judge you if you sneak out because we know where you're going. What I found about the Krispy Kreme donut is that people don't go to Krispy Kreme just to look at the donuts. I mean, when was the last time that you told your kids and your wife to get into the car and say to them, we're just going to go look at the donuts at Krispy Kreme. We're not going to buy any. You don't go to Krispy Kreme just to look. You go to eat a donut, all right? Now, let's just say, for sake of argument here, you are just going to look at the donuts. That's your whole goal, is just to walk into Krispy Kreme and just to look at the donuts being made. I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say, you're not just going to look at them. Okay? You're not just going to go and look. You're going to eventually be tempted to buy a dozen. And if you still don't eat them, just bring them to my house. I'll take care of them for you, okay? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Temptation in our life today is a lot like a Krispy Kreme donut. We have an enemy by the name of Satan. The Bible says, walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And what he tries to do in our life, regardless of what age we are, is he tries to draw us in so that we will focus on nothing else but temptation and eventually give in to it. The good news, though, for us who know Jesus Christ today is that God has not left us alone. He's not left us without help. He's not left us without the assistance to overcome temptation. And that is exactly what James deals with in these verses. He is the one who goes out and says, here is how you are to overcome temptation. Because the truth of the matter, friends, and the point of the passage today is that the mature believer overcomes temptation. The mature believer overcomes temptation. Regardless of the situation... The believer knows how to overcome what Satan throws at him. And I think it's interesting that James, by the way, discusses temptation right after trials. Past two weeks, we looked at uh, difficult circumstances in your life. But I find it interesting that James talks about temptation. And I think he did it on purpose because he knows that in the midst of trials, it's really easy to give into temptation. You know, I said last week, 
you can grow the best. God can grow you the greatest when you're in the midst of difficulty. But it's also clear that you can give into temptation the easiest when you're in the midst of trials. You see, when you're down, Satan tries to bring you lower. When you're struggling, Satan tries to get you sinning. And so what we have to do is we have to learn, regardless of what situation we're in, to overcome temptation. Now the question is, what exactly do we need to do? What is it that God has given us in his word to do in our lives so that we can overcome temptation? It's here in these verses, 13 through 18, that we'll see three steps, three actions that we are to take in our life if we want to overcome temptation. Three steps that we need to take in our life to overcome temptation. I want to jump into the text this morning. Look at verse 13 with me if you have your place there. Verse 13, James switches again and he says this, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Friend, the first step that we are to take if we want to overcome temptation is this, we are not to play the blame game. We're not to play the blame game. We may say, Pastor Nick, Uh, Are you telling me that as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are you telling me that uh, I'm going to blame it on God for being tempted? Are you telling me that I'm going to blame God for falling into sin? I would never do that. Well, here's the deal. Not so quick. Be careful because we may not do it outright verbally, but we might do it secretly. We could be tempted in the dark places of our heart to say things like this. If God would have only given me a better job, I would tithe to the church. If God would only have changed my environment, if he would only have given me a better educational opportunity, if he only would have changed circumstances in my life, I would have been a better person. See, friend, if we're honest today, we're all guilty of this temptation because we all have an inclination to sin. And because we are fallen creatures... There's no sin that we are to put past ourselves because we all have a desire to sin. It's easy for us in the middle of temptation to blame it on God or to blame it on somebody else. You've probably heard the phrase before, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Or we may say, well, God, again, if he could have changed my circumstances. And you say, I'll never do that. Well, consider the first person who was ever created. Consider Adam. If you go back to the beginning of creation, you see the fall take place. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, and God begins to confront Adam on his sin. And what does Adam say back to God? It's the woman you gave to me. Did you catch that? The woman you gave to me was the reason I fell into sin. I was doing just fine until you put her into my life. You think about that. He's not only blaming one person, he's blaming two people for his sin. God and the woman and Eve. And you think about Eve too. What does Eve do? God confronts Eve and Eve begins to turn it around somebody else. And he said, well, it's the Satan that, excuse me, it's the serpent in the garden. Implication, God, weren't you the one who created the serpent? God, weren't you the one who put the serpent in the garden? See, the translation in the midst of all this is that, God, it's your fault. God, it's your fault that I am struggling with sin today. See, friend, we all are guilty of this problem, and it's easy for us uh, 
in our life to blame God for our sin. If we're going to overcome it, we have to first admit that it's not God's problem. And James reminds us of that too. He says, not only is God not the problem, but notice there in verse 13 again, he says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For what? God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth, or neither does he tempt any man. See, God not only doesn't tempt you, God cannot even be tempted with sin. Now, if you're following along today, that might bring up some questions in your mind. You might say, well, if Jesus is God, which he is, then how could he have been tempted by Satan? How could he have been drawn away and, and tempted in the wilderness by Satan? Or you might say, well, if Jesus is God, which he is, then how could he sympathize with us? As Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, that he can actually sympathize, sympathize with us in the midst of temptation. He knows what it feels like. Well, you say, well, if Jesus is God, then how, how can he be tempted? That's quite a, quite a problem, isn't it? How do, we, how do we rectify those things? How do we bring those passages together? I'm sure you were thinking that question today. So if you come back tonight at 6 p.m., Harley will uh, answer that for you, okay? <laughs> I want you to see this, the words there that cannot be tempted in verse 13. I love this. is translated from a Greek word that has the idea of the capacity for temptation. It has the idea of without the capacity for temptation. In other words, in other words, when Christ is tempted in his life, there is nothing within his nature to be attracted to sin. I like what John MacArthur said. He put it this way. God is aware of evil, but he's untouched by it. He's untouched by it. The word there could be translated invincible. God is invincible to sin. It's important for us to consider that matter because we have to realize that God doesn't tempt us, nor can he be tempted. Now, God, as someone put it, God may permit the circumstances for you to be tempted. Uh, God may permit the uh, situation for you to be tempted by sin, but he's never going to prompt you to sin. By the way, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what does it say? He provides a way out of temptation. See, God may permit, he never prompts, but he always provides. He always provides for you to find a way out of sin. The source of temptation, verse 14 says, if you're struggling with temptation today, verse 14 tells us that the source is that of the lust within our own hearts. You see, when you fall into sin today, you can't blame anybody but yourself. When you struggle with temptation today and you fall and you follow what you shouldn't be following, the Bible says you cannot blame anybody but your own heart. Your own heart. Your own desire to sin. Your inner craving like a fish. The, the image there in that verse is that of a fish being drawn away from its hiding place and finding some bait to fall into sin. And friend, we, we are... In the same way, just like that fish, we are drawn away by our own desire. So that means we better be on guard. 
I want to just speak to you for a moment here. I want to just, uh, just be transparent with you. We, we always have to be sober, the Bible says, to be vigilant, to be ready for what Satan throws our way. And by the way, that might mean some of you need to find a friend. Uh, that might mean some of you need to find some accountability in your life. Uh, that might mean some of you need to get into a, a Bible study fellowship even here at our church to find community. I, I've never found somebody to fight sin alone. If you're struggling with something today, if you're dealing with a problem, you will never defeat sin alone. Sin is always fought in community. Sin is always fought in community. It's always fought with other people around you, pushing you to holiness. And by the way, that's why the church exists today, to help you fight your sin, to help each other. I love that. We're in the ring. You think about that. We're fighting sin in the ring together. We're not alone. We're in this together to defeat what Satan throws at us. And so we are, we are to use those around us to fight sin. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what does it say? It says God provides a way out of temptation. That might just be the person sitting next to you today. That provision for you to fight your temptation might just be the person standing next to you in the choir. It might just be the person who serves in the ministry with you. See, we've got to find people in our life to fight sin together. So the first step we must take to overcome temptation is to make sure we're not play, playing the blame game. Not to blame God. The second step, I want you to see this. I want to spend some time here because I think it's important. The second step we are to take is to understand the process of temptation. We are to understand the process, the progression of temptation. You see, what James does here, I love this. What James does here is he starts from the beginning of temptation and he goes to the end of temptation. He says, here's the pro progress. Here, here's, here's the process. Here's, here's what happens when temptation comes in your life. And he does this so that we will understand temptation, friend. And he also does it so that we will be able to see it as a warning to not go down that path. We are to understand the progression. Notice again verse 14 here. I want you to see the first step the first step in the, in the progression of temptation. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. That is our desires within us, our inner cravings. The first step is our desires. The word lust there has the idea of a desire against anything or a desire for something that is an error, a forbidden object. Something that you shouldn't go after. You have a desire for it. And I want you to see this too. I love this. At the beginning of verse 14, we miss this so many times when we read our English translations. It says this at the beginning, but every man is tempted. That could literally be translated this way. Each one of us is uniquely tempted. Individually tempted. You see, you may have a temptation that you struggle with that the person sitting next to you may not. See, we all have an inclination to sin. We, we all have these desires to sin, but some of us are tempted in different ways. By the way, I think Satan knows that. I, I believe with all my heart that Satan knows exactly what you struggle with. He's an expert in the things you are tempted with. I'm going to show you that here in a second. So there is a desire... 
a lust within your heart. That's where temptation begins. But the second step, notice this, is the draw. It's the draw. It's the enticement. Notice the end of verse 14. He says he's drawn away of his own lust and what? Enticed. He's enticed. The draw there that I'm speaking to is that of bait. It's the invitation. It's the person, place, thing, idea that's put in front of you to get you to sin. It's external to us. It's the billboard on the highway. It's the click on the internet. It's the web page you want to surf on your phone. It's the conversation you want to have with the person. It's the invitation to sin. It's the bait to get you to fall into sin. And again, I, I don't think James is speaking directly here. He's not telling us that Satan is directly involved in this. But I think if we go to other passages in Scripture, even in James, we can know that Satan is involved in putting the bait in front of us. You, you go to James chapter 3. You go to James chapter 4. Again, 1 Peter 5. We know Satan uh, is putting the bait in front of us to get us to sin. He's like a football team that watches the game film. You know, if you ever played football before, basketball before, what, what, what will the coaches do? They'll gather the, the game film of the opposing team and they'll watch every single move, won't they? To make sure that they can figure out what the opponent is going to do. Listen, Satan has the game film on you. He's watching the game film to see how you act, to see where you go, to see what you struggle with. And he's putting the bait at the moments that we struggle the most to see if our desires will flare up and will commit sin. Let me illustrate that for you. I've got a picture here to show you in a second. They're going to put it on the screen. Don't put it on there yet. But I'm going to show you a picture just this past week. You know, vacation Bible school, sometimes it can be a stressful time for some of us. And uh, so I got a little stressed one day. So I decided to go out to this place called Crumble Cookie. How many of you have ever heard of Crumble Cookie? Okay, good. Most of us, right? If you haven't tried Crumble Cookie yet, you need to try it. They're, they're kind of like a rising cookie company here in North Carolina and across the nation, really. And I think there's a couple places, uh, even in Greensboro now. I was passing this Crumble Cookie, and I just had this urge <laughs> for a red velvet cookie. Well, sure enough... I walked in there and I said, I'm just going to see what's there, right? I'm just going to see if they have it. Now, they change their flavors every week, so you never know what they're going to have. Well, sure enough, there was a red velvet cookie. So I knew it was a sign from God that I was supposed to get that cookie, right? <laughs> and by the way, you can't just get one cookie there, okay? If you, if you know, if you've been there, you can't just get one. I mean, you got a problem if you just get one cookie. <laughs> you got to get all six of them. So what did I do? I texted Greg Smith, and I said, Greg, you want a cookie? He said no. I said, well, I'm going to get six anyway. <laughs> so I got six cookies, and I brought it back. And listen, it's like a sugar coma. You, you talk about like a diabetes in a box. Let me just, let me, let me show you this. Look at that picture. I mean, look, at the, the red velvet's there on the top and the middle. I can't even remember what flavors they were. I just said, give, give me all six. So I said, well, I'm just going to cut the red velvet in half, okay? And I'm just going to eat half, you know, because if you keep going, it's, it's a dangerous game you play, <laughs> okay? And I said, well, I'll give the other half to Hannah. 
I'm so kind. I'm a good husband. I'll give the other half to Hannah. So I cut it in half. I ate the other half, and I put it in the church office, and I went back to my office. Well, the problem is, too, again, sin is fought in community. For some reason or another, I don't know if the Lord allowed this, but there was nobody else in the office to eat these cookies. That was the problem, first of all. So anyway, I went back to my office. I started studying there for a little bit. Came to 2, 3 p.m., you know, the, the mid-afternoon slump. You know, it's that time when you need another cookie. And there, dangling in the front of me is the image of that red velvet cookie. And, and I don't know how it happened. Probably the sugar coma. I ended up in the church office. <laughs> and there in front of me, in my hands, was the other piece of the red velvet cookie. And there was no chance. The desire met the draw. And uh, Hannah never got the other half. <laughs> Listen. I, I, I tell that funny illustration to say that's exactly the way Satan works in our life. He knows exactly what you're struggling with, and he knows exactly what the problem is that you are dealing with, and he has a PhD, the Bible says. I'm just going to take 1 Peter 5, 8 and put it in Nick's translation. He has a PhD in what you're struggling with, and he's there dangling it in front of you to see if he can get you to sin, to see if he can get you to fall. I've watched this in my own life. I remember in Bible college, I had a professor tell me, I've never forgotten this, I had a professor tell me, he said, there are two temptations that a pastor is going to struggle with. He said, sexual immorality and money. He said, there's two temptations. If you're going to go into ministry, you better watch these two areas of your life. And as I've gotten in ministry, I'll add a third. I'll say pride. i say there, there's probably three struggles that if a pastor is going to fall, he's going to fall in one of those areas. You think about it, have you ever seen a pastor fall for gossip? I mean, have you ever seen a pastor fall for inhospitality? No, we've always seen pastors over and over again fall for pride. They've lost their ministry because of sexual immorality. They, they failed because of a financial decision, because of greed. And I've watched it in my own life. I know that if Satan is going to put something in front of me, it's going to be in one of those areas. And friend, it's the same thing for you. You may not deal with the same temptations that I deal with as a pastor, as a, as a father, as a husband, as a man, but Satan might know you deal with fear. You know, he might know you deal with anxiety. He might know you deal with gossip. He might know you deal with any other sin, and he's going to dangle it in front of you. And teenager here today, those teenagers sitting in this room, I want to speak to you directly too, because I think about just those that Satan tries to get to the most. And if I've ever seen Satan go after a Christian, it's always the younger generation because he knows if he can ruin you as a teenager, he'll ruin you for the rest of your life. Teenager, college student, it might be the thing you're looking at online. It might be the self-image that you're trying to post. And by the way, parents here this morning, you better know what your kids are looking at. You better know what they're searching because I promise you, Satan does. I promise you, Satan is working his ways to get your teenager, to get your student, to get your kids to fall into sin. And those who fall into sin might say, well, Pastor Nick, I, 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 I didn't think it was going to lead to this. See, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Our desire meets the draw, and we disobey. That's the third step, the third step. Our desire meets the draw, we run away with it, and it produces 
sin. Notice verse 15. Then when lust hath conceived, what does it do? It bringeth forth sin. Bringeth forth sin. Notice that James changes the images here. He moves from the pond where the fisherman is to the delivery room in the hospital, doesn't he? And he says that finally your desire is drawn to the draw. It's drawn to the bait and it runs away. And the desire conceives by the draw, by disobedience. And what does it produce? It brings forth a child and the child's name is Sin. It's sin. That's exactly how sin works in your life. And again, you may say, well, Pastor Nick, I, I didn't think at that point that it was going to lead to this. You know, I, I've seen so many people even come into my office at times throughout ministry, and they'll say, I, I didn't think it was going to go that way. I, I didn't think that was going to be the problem. It didn't look like sin in the moment. It just looked good. It, it just looked like a wise financial decision. It just looked like a pleasure that I was going to use to get away from the pressure I was feeling. It just looked like personal satisfaction. It just felt good. I liked it. It looked fun in the moment. It looked attractive. Again, not only will Satan bait you, but he'll also make sin look attractive. When you think about that, he will always try to make sin look way better than what it is. He will always try to make sure the things you struggle with look way better than the result of what they produce. I can't help but think about our society today. Just consider, just consider the things that are in our society today. You can't even watch TV today. Honestly, you can't even watch things on the internet today through platforms like Netflix and Hulu and other things without seeing a downplay of sin, without making light of sin, and, and sometimes even just ignoring the fact that it is sin. I mean, why else would, would retail stores today promote things like homosexuality and transgenderism? Why else would they make them look so good to us? Why else would we try to redefine life at conception? You think about it, we no longer call it killing babies. What do we call it? It's your choice. It's your choice. See, Satan if he has his way, is going to make sin as attractive as possible to redefine what sin really looks like. So that you think, in the moment, you think it's not that bad. You think disobeying God really isn't that bad. I like what Alistair Begg said about this. He said, the evil one makes the road to death as attractive as possible. What a... What a Great image to think about. The road to death is paved as attractive as possible. We better watch ourselves. Notice the fourth step. The fourth step here of, of the progress of temptation. You'll see it begins with a desire. It then moves to the draw. It results in disobedience. But James doesn't leave it there. What does he say? He says the fourth step is death. It's death. Notice the end of verse 15. He says, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, or some translations might say, when it is matured, it brings forth death. It brings forth death. See, James here is, is trying to tell us that when sin is kept, when, when sin is, is cherished, 
When you hang on to sin and you let it mature in your life, it's going to, again, bring destruction after destruction after destruction, eventually to the point that it reaches death. Now, I don't think he's just speaking about physical death here, although I think there's moments in life that even sin brings about an immature death. But I don't think he's just speaking about physical death here because we know sinners live a long time, don't they? I don't think he's just speaking about spiritual death here either. I think he's referring to what some have called the death-like existence. Death-like existence. If you've ever been there before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly how it feels to both live but to be dead. To just be completely empty. It's a self-destructive way to live. David, even, after his sinful act with Bathsheba. David felt this way in his unrepentant heart. If you remember in Psalm 32, we're not going to read it for sake of time. I'm going to read one verse though because I want you to see David's heart here in the midst of sin. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. My vitality was drained away. You think about it, if you continue in sin in your life, friend, and I, I, I want to be completely honest here because I, I, I don't I don't want to shy away and I don't want to just leave the platform today without warning Christians of the magnitude of sin and where it will lead if you don't deal with it in your life. See, sin is serious. It's a death-like existence when you allow sin to take hold of your heart and you never deal with it. See, sin may be fun for a season. The Bible says that sin is fun for a season, but it's not going to last. It will never stay there if it's allowed to mature, it will lead to death. James says this, and this is why he says it in verse 16. He says, do not err, brethren. Notice that in verse 16. Do not be deceived. Wake up. Christian, wake up today. Sin is serious. Sin will lead to death, so get busy. Get busy. You know, when summer uh, rolls around, there's one critter, well, there's probably multiple critters that causes problems, but there's one critter that, that causes problems in my house, and that is a, a, a mouse. Anybody else deal with mice during the summer? I'm sure you do, probably in your crawl space or, or even in your house sometimes. Well, the, the mouse is a problem for me. So I decided this summer that I'm going to take an all-out war on the mice, okay? I mean, it's, it's going to end. So between my father-in-law and me, we went to Lowe's, and uh, we decided uh, to get a few options. I wasn't just going to get one option to take care of the mouse. I was going to get a couple options, okay? So we ended up, you know, with the traditional wooden, you know, mouse trap, okay? And then we, we ended up with the, the, the poison in the pouch deal. And then my personal favorite is the sticky pad. You know what I mean? Like, okay, these mice, they're going to get it, all right? That's what I'm thinking. I'm heartless, I know, okay? But they're going to get it, all right? Listen, if I had a chance to, to bring the mice into my living room, Let's say I had a chance to bring the mice into my living room and I'd, I'd sit them down and I'd show them. I'd say, look, here is what you're going to get if you keep coming into my house. All right, if you keep going after my potato chips, this is the result. I'd say the danger. I'd say this is serious. You better, you better pay attention. I'd even, I'd even probably put a PowerPoint together, you know. And I'd alliterate a couple things. I'd say... The house is for humans, and the potato chips are for people. <laughs> That's what I'd say to them, right? 
I'd get their attention, and I'm sure in this moment, they'd probably walk away hopeless. And you're probably thinking, Pastor Nick, you're heartless. <laughs> they'd probably walk away hopeless, saying that we're going to die in the woods, and we're going to die in Nick's house, so it doesn't matter where we live. And they're right about that, okay? But here's the deal. Here's the deal. In all of this, what's so great about the Christian life is that God doesn't speak to us like the way I speak to a mouse. Now, he may warn us about the dangers. He may bring us into his living room, and he may say, here is the danger. Here is the problem. Here's what you're going to get if you continue in sin. But he says, I'm not going to leave you there. <laughs> I love this. He, he doesn't say, I'm not going to leave you without hope. He doesn't say, I'm not going to leave you without a solution to your problem. See, there's a way out of temptation, and that's the third step that we are to take today. If you want to overcome temptation in your life, I want you to see this now. We are to focus, number three, on the truth. We're to focus on the truth. If temptation is ever going to be defeated in our life today, there's two things I want you to focus on. Two things that James says, turn your attention to. Number one, number one is the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Notice verse 17. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. I love this. With whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You know, oftentimes in the middle of temptation and even in the midst of sin, when we act upon sin in our life and we follow through with it, we often forget about the promises of God to bring about the good things in our life. And, you know, we often forget that God's promises for our good are far greater than the temptations to sin. And God says, if you're ever going to overcome temptation, you better focus on what I have for you. Because every good gift comes down from heaven. And by the way, by the way, there's no changing with the Lord. That's why at the end of that verse... He says there's no, no shadow of turning, no variableness. God doesn't change. God doesn't overlook you. God will bring about his promises to bless you. So we are to trust him in the midst of that. So we are to focus on the goodness of God. And then number two, I want you to see this. The second thing you're to focus on if you want to overcome temptation in your life, the second thing is the grace of God, the grace of God. Notice verse 18, and I'll be done this morning. Verse 18 says this, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits for his creatures. Uh, the figure there of being of first fruits is actually drawn from the Old Testament. It was uh, what they would do uh, during the Old Testament time to actually give back to the Lord. They would give back the first portion of their harvest of their fields, and they'd give it back to the Lord as an act of praise and an act of worship. It was the best given to the Lord. And what James does is he takes that image and he applies it to you and me. And he says that you aren't ordinary. No, you are a child of the king. You are a first fruit. You are his possession. So guess what? Do away with the worms. Do away with the sinful desires you have. Do away with the temptations. Put those to the side because they're not as good as the goodness of God and the grace of God. Listen, if you're struggling with temptation today, if you're dealing with an issue in your life, I want to speak honestly, but I also want to leave you with hope because there is hope. 
There is something better than sin. And that is what God has given to us. To consider his goodness. To consider how much grace he has given to us. If you want to overcome sin, there are three things you must do. If you want to nip sin in the bud, if you want to get rid of it in your life, the Bible says don't play the blame game. Understand the progression and focus on the truth. Focus on the truth. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we are mindful of your presence today as we gather to look at your word. We're thankful for the time you've given us and we're mindful that you have called us to live a different life. You called us as a result of the death of your son on the cross to live like a Christian. And I know many times in this life there are temptations to do the wrong thing. There are desires to, to go after what we shouldn't go after. We're grateful, Lord, that you have given us the opportunity to look at the hope, to look at the good things that you've given us, to look at the grace. So, Lord, we pray right now that there are Christians in this room who are struggling, that you will speak to their heart to find the help and the hope they need in the midst of this. We pray, Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, maybe they're lost in their sin, we know that you've also given hope uh, through the death of your son. And so we pray this 